welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background here on episode 108 on March 23rd, 2023. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as always and recommending it to friends and family if uh, they're interested in half an hour episode each week uh, on the Consumer News of the Week with very interesting guests. My guest this week is Dr. Graham Brooks. He's an agricultural economist with PG Economics in the UK, which specializes in examining the economic and environmental impact of new technology use in agriculture. And he has been uh, quite a voice in, on the research on GMOs. And we're talking about uh, the cultivation of GMOs, not just in Europe, but around the world and its advantages. And also the question, should it be labeled? So you can hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, Lelystad Airport in the Netherlands under threat by the Farmers Party BBB. We'll talk about what that's all about. And nuclear power has been included in the European Commission's Net Zero Industry Act. So let's get started. Dutch Farmers' Party election success threatens airport plans. That's what Politico is writing. The success of the farmer-friendly Beweging BBB, party in provincial elections in the Netherlands last week could have a huge impact on the country's aviation industry, according to Dutch media. BBB, which was founded in 2019 and campaigned against nitrogen reduction laws, won 31% of the vote in Wednesday's poll. While it focuses on agriculture and related climate policy, the party has also spoken out against Lelystad Airport, which is one of the biggest aviation projects in the Netherlands. So you will know that we've talked quite a bit about aviation and a lot of it comes back to the Netherlands. Uh, in past years, we've talked about aviation because the Dutch government has frequently introduced plans to have a Europe-wide tax on, uh, on short-haul flights, banning short-haul flights, is a seven-euro individual climate tax, uh, things that are being introduced on a member state level in France, in the Netherlands itself, which has caused some disruption because some passengers, when the flights are too expensive, they do travel, for instance, from Amsterdam to Brussels to have alternatives in that sector. Schiphol Airport, also as we discussed recently, is trying to reduce its nitrogen emissions on one hand by buying farmland around the airport to try and get more uh, certifications in order to be able to emit more, but also at the same time reducing its overall passenger numbers. But all of that is calculated in a specific way for its own airlines. Uh, because Lelystad Airport also would be uh, located in Amsterdam, and it's actually already fully built and staffed, the tower's already fully staffed, so it's ready to go, it just needs final approval, uh, that airport would then service a lot of the holiday flights for the very large population living all around it. Uh, so, for instance, airlines uh, such as KLM's holiday packages, Transavia, TUI, Corindon, all of those airlines would be able to fly out from Lelystad Airport, and then Schiphol could focus on the business flights, the regular long routes, uh, and also the connection activities that happen uh, at that airport. And conveniently uh, located uh, within, within Amsterdam, it would be a, a, a very important addition to the aviation sector in the Netherlands, which is one of the largest ones in Europe and the world. But unfortunately, there might be some, uh, there might be some roadblocks on the way. I personally am a fan of BBB because it is an expression 
the Farmers' Party is an expression of the upset that farmers have in the Netherlands with the nitrogen emission rules and the restrictions on livestock farming, and it's incredibly important. But at the same time, this political party is definitely not a fan of, uh, of the aviation sector because what it has done over the last few years is try and deflect blame that it's unjustly, you could say, uh, and, and, and we should say, on itself and try and blame another sector for it. Uh, which I don't think is particularly helpful because while farmers in the Netherlands say that there's a lot of in, there's a lot of innovation that will help them uh, bridge the gap in uh, reducing uh, those emissions that they are producing, so does the aviation sector. And we've discussed that many times on the podcast before, that there's a lot of technological innovation in aviation um, that will make that possible. On top of that, just like farming, transport, mobility, they're not just luxury products. They're not... Uh, just used by people to go on holidays and I mean arguably a holiday to me um, and to many people is also something essential we can't just expect everybody to have a staycation um, while uh, while some of the people that might have the resources to be able to pay for the extra tickets wouldn't and others wouldn't I think that would be fundamentally unfair and the same applies to food yeah while some people are able to uh, to be able to, to, to pay the extra taxes to offset uh, the increased cost of living uh, created by some of the regulations around uh, food, others do not. And so the arguments here is interestingly the same, and I really hope we don't get to a point where we also have a pro-aviation party that then tries to blame farming. Um, I think the political strategy by BBB to deflect blame onto um, a different sector is not the right way to go. There's a lot of arguments in the agricultural space that can be made um, on its specific problems without trying to shut down an airport, which already is built, and the government has paid a lot of money to get this up and running, and it would be a shame to have it stopped in its tracks. Um, on top of the entire employment opportunities and, and loss of investments and liability that the government uh, would create for itself um, for having this block. Now, how likely is that? It is fairly likely because BBB in the Senate can create a majority with the Green Left Party and some of the left-wing uh, uh, political parties in order to block this project altogether. And then the, uh, the government under Prime Minister Mark Rutte would be in quite a conundrum to find a different way of getting this project through. Uh, so interesting to see how that will develop. I think we're in an interesting position here. Uh, BBB did not expect its success in the elections. Uh, I think you can really see that from the, the from their reaction. I, I think it's quite it's quite it's quite good to see that a farmers' party that represents their interest is is well represented in uh, in the institutions. But I think this creates also new problems where this party should be open to criticism that uh, blaming airlines for um, for the reactions of the government, which now they are in a position to change, um, is actually the wrong way to go about it. And next up, we have the EU's Net Zero Industry Act sends positive signal for nuclear advocates. Say this is Euractiv reporting on uh, the new uh, the new final text. After a series of twists and turns, the European Commission finally decided to include nuclear power in its proposed Net Zero Industry Act, a quote positive political signal unquote for nuclear advocates, even if they uh, remain wary about the detail of the text. So on Thursday, March 16, the Commission unveiled the proposal 
and uh, said that uh, it is setting an EU target of domestically producing at least 40% of the technology needed to achieve the bloc's climate and energy targets by 2030. In addition to the other policy initiatives, the proposed regulation is part of the European response to the IRA, the US Inflation Reduction Act, according to the EU Internal Market Commissioner Thierry Breton, who spoke at a press conference introducing the proposal on Thursday. With a view to reinvigorating EU industry, the text lists eight technologies that will make a significant contribution to decarbonization and are eligible for support. These include solar, wind, batteries and storage, as well as heat pumps and nuclear. So overall, we seem to be gearing up for quite a battle here. This is not the first time that the question of nuclear is being raised and also is still raised because we have an entire conversation also on the hydrogen package deals uh, of legislations that are ca that are coming out in order to produce hydrogen and whether hydrogen uh, can be produced sustainably through nuclear power. Um, that is an entire question that is, uh, that is well, of course, supported by France, but not supported by some other member states which conveniently do not uh, use nuclear power an awful lot and which are ideolo ideologically opposed to it. Uh, so is green hydrogen also produced by nuclear? That's going to be a whole question. There's going to be the question of uh, the continued um, green taxonomy, whether nuclear should be uh, keep being included in that. And so legislation after legislation comes out, which asks a question that has already been answered. Nuclear power is not just efficient, but it is also uh, carbon neutral. And it is very strange that we keep having those debates. Of course, we keep having those debates because a lot of people um, have uh, have watched the uh, HBO show Chernobyl and concluded the thing that even the director of the TV show did not want to conclude, which is that it was an anti-nuclear TV show, which it wasn't. It was more of an anti-Soviet Union TV show, if anything. Um, nuclear half-in rice reactive. France has already welcomed the inclusion of nuclear, even if its addition happened at the last minute after a nail-biting scenario. When the document was first leaked to the press, nuclear was high on the list, but in the days that followed, doubts gradually crept in. And so we've ha we're having this back and forth, and I don't think it's very helpful because we really do need to keep moving on our uh, emissions reductions target. Eurective also says, however, this also means that existing nuclear technologies, such as the French second-generation pressurized water reactors that France wishes to develop, are excluded from the text. And crucially, nuclear doesn't appear in the separate annex to the regulation, which defines strategic net-zero technologies that will be receiving particular support and are subject to 40% domestic production benchmark. Um, so all of that seems to be a bit of a patchwork of, 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 of writing. I don't even think necessarily that, that it was meant to be left out of the annex. I think just somebody who had to rewrite the whole thing last minute probably didn't control find in the PDF well enough and forgot to add it at the very end. Um, but we'll stay tuned and see what happens with nuclear power in Europe. And then last but not least, we have the guest of the week, Dr. Graham Brooks. He's an agricultural economist with PG Economics in the UK. And he has authored 15 papers published in peer-reviewed scientific and economic journals on the economic and environmental impact of GM crops around the world. We're talking about GMOs. Are they safe? Are they, uh, are they efficient? Uh, what is the advantage of GMOs, not just in Europe, but around the world? And should they be labeled? So all of those questions in our interview. Very interesting uh, guest this week. So take it away. 
So Dr. Graham Brooks, thank you so much for joining us on the Consumer Podcast. For the audience members who do not know you, can you give us a bit of a background on yourself and your scientific work? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an agricultural economist by training. Um, I've been doing work related to the impact of technology and agriculture and the impact of policy change and those type of areas now for 35 years. Um, this has involved doing work originally mainly related to the European Union and then has broadened out to uh, a more global perspective. Um, about 25 years ago when um, biotech crops were first starting to be used commercially, um, I started doing analysis on their impact at the farm level and I've been doing quite a lot of work in that area over that 25-year period. Um, in fact, I was the first researcher to undertake um, a farm-level impact study of using insect-resistant maize in Spain back in 2002 and I've also been doing analysis on the global impact of the technology since 2004. And as a result of that, I'm now an author or co-author of numerous papers in peer-reviewed journals on the economic and environmental impact of the technology around the world. So I'd like to think that I have a reasonable knowledge and perspective on the impact of this technology. Well, arguably, you've been studying these issues as long as I have been alive. So definitely, there's a lot of experience in that. So tell us a bit about this, because you did mention Spain and BT maize has been cultivated in Spain and Portugal uh, exclusively uh, for, for, for Europe. So what can you tell us? What has been the impact of the cultivation of BT maize on uh, yields and also on the incomes for farmers? Yeah, um, I'll just briefly give your... Um listeners the context um, effectively the European Union only ever approved the planting of one trait of GM crops in Europe back in 1998 it approved the use of insect resistant maize this maize targets the control of a particular bad pest that um, affects the maize crop, the European corn borer, which basically burrows into the crop, destroys it, adversely affects yields and uh, can lead to a lot of fungal infections, which are lead to um, what is in effect uh, carcinogens in the, in the crop. Now, the technology was first used in Spain in 1998 um, it was extended to some other countries um, like Portugal, France and Germany, Czech Republic. Um, but in the current climate um, of 2023, the technology is only used in Spain and Portugal. Um, the farmers there who've used it in Spain, it's used on roughly a third of the crop. And that roughly coincides with really the proportion of the Spanish crop that regularly suffers significant damage from European corn borer pests. 
Um, the farmers who've used the technology regularly use it. They like it. And the simple reason is because it controls the pest. They get, um, in Spain, the average yield impact has been an improvement of just under 12% of higher yield. Um, there, in terms of improvements on farm income, the gain per hectare of crop that's used the technology has been over two, 210 US dollars, so probably about 192-200 euros per hectare, so it's been fairly significant. Um, I always try to look at it in terms of the returns on investment to farmers because they have to pay more money for using this type of seed relative to non-GM seed. And I worked out in Spain that the return on investment has been about a five to one ratio. So for every extra dollar that a Spanish farmer's paid on the biotech seed, he's got an extra five dollars in extra income so it's not surprised that the farmers who've used the technology like it because they get very good returns um, and also it has enabled them to um, reduce the use of insecticides which were the conventional way of trying to control European corn borer pest but insecticides are not very effective in controlling corn borer because effectively you've got to hit them at the moment that they're on the outside of the plant, whereas they then burrow into the plant and would otherwise be largely protected from the um, insecticide. So it has enabled farmers to reduce their insecticide use and increase their yields and their farm incomes. Um, and in terms of input use per extra tonne of crop, it's also effectively resulted in reduced use of a more efficient use of um, water. Um, we estimated that um, the water savings have been um, quite significant. I mean, in the context of the amount of irrigation water that's been saved overall in Spain and Portugal, it is small, but it's equivalent of at least half of 1% of all the irrigation water used in agriculture. So it's a not insignificant amount of saving. Well, those are, those are some fantastic improvements. And, uh, well, arguably, we could say that uh, Europe is definitely not the most complicated climate to uh, cultivate uh, some of these crops. So what can you tell us about the significance of these crops for uh, developing nations uh, where probably the circumstances are already m much more difficult for the for the farmers yeah in the in the context of biotech um, crops being used worldwide they've been widely used since about 1996 and um, it is people quite often think it's um, oh, it's a technology that's mainly used in developed countries, but it isn't. Most of the technology is, in terms of numbers of farmers, is used by farmers in developing countries. And out of the 261 billion US dollars worth of extra farm income that the technology has delivered in the last 25 years, more than half of that has gone to farmers in developing countries. 
Now, most of those gains have been to farmers who have grown um, cotton using the technology, many insect resistant cotton in countries like China and India. And I totted up the countries where GM cotton is used, like India, China, um, Myanmar and Pakistan. And out of that $261 billion worth of extra farm income, 60 billion of it has been to farmers in those developing countries where they've been using it in cotton. But it's also been used um, widely in, um, in South Africa. Their farmers have been using the technology since the late 90s in maize, cotton and soya beans. And their farmers have got 2.8 billions worth of extra farm income. And um, in Asia, you've had the biotech maize has been used in the Philippines and Vietnam more recently. So um, the technology has been widely used in developing countries. It's not just in um, North and South America. Now, some of these uh, technologies have sparked criticism uh, with uh, people, not just uh, on an organizational level with activist groups, but also individually people sometimes feel scared uh, about this uh, technology and they have different reasons why they oppose it. And I was curious, I'm pretty sure you've been in situations where uh, you're at a dinner and somebody asks you about your, about your work and then you explain that you've uh, done research in the field of GMOs and then they ask you all the different questions about is this safe, is this dangerous? Um, and, uh, and I was curious, your experience in those conversations that you might have had with people, um, what is your, you could say, what, what is your elevator pitch? How do you react to those people? Well, my reaction um, to any questions where people ask that is always, um, it's my mantra of follow the science and follow the evidence. Now, you can, if you go back 25 years, you can understand why people might have shown reticence to a new technology. Is it safe? And the regulatory systems put in place for uh, regulating this technology are probably the most onerous sets of regulations ever developed for an agricultural technology. And we're now 25 years down the, the road and there is not a single scrap of credible evidence of any um, negative health impact from any pro uh, food product that's come from using this technology. And the environmental impacts also are... Um, largely positive. We've had a significant reduction in the amount of um, pesticide, uh, pesticides used on biotech crops. But um, we calculated that um, the technology has been responsible for a 750 million kilogram reduction in the amount of pesticide active ingredient used. That's only a 7% decrease. But in terms of the associated environmental impact as measured by um, what we used um, an environmental impact indicator developed at Cornell University it's a larger 17% decrease and also it's resulted in um, important contribution to reducing carbon emissions um, the technology has made that contribution from reducing the amount of fuel that farmers use to apply pesticides and also the herbicide tolerant technology has helped many farmers go into reduced and no tillage agriculture, which has helped increase the amount of carbon that's stored in the soil. 
So it's delivered important environmental benefits as well as socioeconomic benefits to farmers, especially in developing countries. And it's always struck me that it's a great shame that Europe has largely shunned this technology um, on non-scientific grounds. It, it is indeed unfortunate. And some people might react to, uh, to you explaining these issues and say, look, um, I understand this. This is, a, this is a very interesting technology. It should be available. But then some people will say, yes, but it should be labeled. It should be labeled accordingly. Consumers should be aware um, of, uh, of which foods uh, have, have been using this technology specifically. So I was curious about your view on the, on the whole question of mandatory labeling. Does it make sense? Um, well, the concept of mandatory labeling is... Um I, 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 un I understand the concept of labelling, um, but, but mandatory labelling is essentially there for labelling when consumers may be faced with um, a risk or a danger to their health. Now, in the relation to GMOs, they are dealt with by the regulatory process, but we have nevertheless had mandatory GM ingredient labelling in Europe ostensibly with the objective of facilitating consumer choice. So it's not there for consumer protection. That's what the regulation is for. But it's there and it's specifically stated in the legislation. It's to facilitate more informed consumer choice. That is why the complete irony of the introduction of EU labelling for GM ingredients, that it is actually completely failed to deliver more informed consumer choice. What we've actually resulted in is we've had higher costs of supply and higher prices for consumer and less choice. Uh, and that, that has basically come about in Europe because when the labelling was first introduced, the reaction of the food industry was, oh, we, must, we don't want to label GM ingredients, so we'll take them out. Now, non-GM food ingredients tend to be more expensive to produce because this is a technology that improves productivity and tends to reduce cost. So it's resulted in the supply chain going down a GM avoidance policy, which has resulted in higher costs of production, which has ultimately been passed on to consumers. Now, you, your average European consumer will be completely oblivious to the fact that they are paying a higher price for food products because of this labelling stance, um, but they don't, they don't realise that at all. And they also have not been given the increased consumer choice because they The original rationale for the legislation was, well, if you label, consumers can choose. But if you actually go into a European supermarket, you will very rarely find products that contain GM ingredients and have got the label to show it because the food industry has taken a GM avoidance policy. So consumers are basically not given a choice. They're only given the choice of the non-GM ingredients and they are oblivious to the fact that they're actually paying a higher price for those foods than they could otherwise have had 
if they had the GM alternative. Well, that is uh, very, very interesting for uh, consumers to know. Uh, I think we're about, we're about over on our time here. This has been highly educational, I think, not just for our audience, but also to myself. So, Dr. Graham Brooks, thank you so much for joining us on the Consumer Podcast. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Consumer Choice Center on all the social media platforms and, of course, on Twitter at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Woods, and I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn to pay. Pressure, you've only